automation is the new normal. So everything has to be around the you know trying to use the latest technology and minimum human intervention to be able to do that. You're listening to Sports Tech Feed, the global sports technology podcast. Hello, that's right. You're listening to Sports Tech Feed. I'm your host, Thomas Alomes. Delighted to be with you once again this week. Uh, we've got a great show coming up with Umberto Rigetti, Chief Strategy Officer at Atrium Sports. So Umberto shares a little bit about his 20-year overnight success story within Sports Tech. Started all out with a voluntary role in grassroots sports. That led him to give up a high-paying job as an accountant and try his hand at a sports tech entrepreneur. I won't do too many more spoilers around that, but it's a really interesting uh, kind of first half of the conversation. And then we move into talking about how he's currently working and the team at Atrium Sports is working with the likes of FIFA and also the basketball equivalent FIBA about connected stadiums and automation of video capture and dissemination. So really interesting chat and, and kind of continuing our theme that we've had over the last few weeks of global sports tech entrepreneurs. So last week we were dialing into Denmark to speak with Peter Holm from Tonsa, the football social media sharing skills app. The week before that it was New Zealand with Kaylee Wilson from Blinder, which is all about connecting fans, sponsors and athletes directly while respecting their privacy. And this chat with Umberto was recorded a few weeks ago in person in London really interesting discussion as i said if you've got any feedback about the episode please contact me at thomas at sportstechfeed.com also you can follow along on sports tech world series on linkedin that's where we post a few links to the shows and also other news and kind of uh, industry happenings and show notes and more information including different podcasting platforms and different episodes sportstechfeed.com looking forward to it here it is Welcome to Sports Tech Feed, Umberto. Great to have you here in uh, Vumro's London offices. Thanks, Thomas. A pleasure to be here in London. I'm normally in the Melbourne office with John, but it's a pleasure to be here in London with you. Yes, it's a touch sunnier down there than it is. Uh, we've <laughs> just got sunset, sunset at about three o'clock. So. <laughs> Very true. But great to have you in town. And uh, I mean, let's just start from the beginning. How did you get started in sports technology? How did I get started? Um Probably something a bit different to most people, you know. I wasn't um, straight out of school or straight out of uni and doing a tech startup. My career was primarily in, in business as a chartered accountant. Joined Pete, what's called PwC now, um, in the UK and then moved with PwC to Australia. So background was business rather than uh, tech. Uh, but I was always involved in tech, even at PwC. was involved in major business transformation if you like probably didn't call them digital transformation projects but that's that, what that they wasn't were. that wasn't the buzzword back then no or? it was a different different word i guess it was just a, a major it project that was going to change how you did business but yeah i'd always been involved in in that throughout my business career at pwc so i always had an interest in tech in terms of how tech played a role in changing business how it transformed business sort of thing but the sort of sports part was probably when my uh, eldest turned six um, Kieran and when I took him along to join the local football club in Linfield in the North Shore of Sydney. So that's so I mean that's obviously a, a business experience. But um, how did you get? Wh- what's the link? What's the link to the going along to your local um, kind of small uh, cricket club to football club? Football club, sorry. Um, to I mean where you are now yeah, uh, I mean as I a leader th- in the industry. I, th- I mean the link, w- and, and and many people I think 
kickstart a career by doing something voluntary and taking an interest in it. But the link was when I joined, well, when I took my son along to register, um, the president of the club said to me, you're a chartered accountant, you understand a bit about business, you know, would you like to join our committee, the committee that, that runs the club? Um, and at the time, I was a little bit sceptical. I'd just done three years, I think, as the preschool treasurer, and I thought I'd done my bit for voluntary duties. You, you, you served your time, uh, and I you were moving on. It was time to move on, let someone else do it. But, but yeah, I mean, he said, well, come along to the first committee meeting, sit down, and then make a decision afterwards. So I did that. I sat through the first committee meeting, and I still remember at the end of the meeting, the president turned to me and said, well, you know, what do you think? Did you, did you enjoy that? Did you, did you have any questions? And I said, yep, um, I've only got one question. And that's, at the end of the year, how do you guys look at each other in the eyes and know if you've done a good job or not? And I can still picture the jaws dropping and people sort of looking at each other and saying, well, what does he mean by that? And I don't think anyone had ever asked that question. You know, what, what is it that, how are you measuring success? How, how are you running your club? So, yeah, at the end of, end of that, um, I decided I'd join the committee. I put together what was the first strategic plan for Linfield Football Club. We wrote job descriptions for the uh, different roles that we had, from treasurer to secretary to registrar, etc. Um, we came up with KPIs, we came up with a vision, a mission statement, and we ran the club effectively like a business. So I guess I was using my business knowledge from PwC and, and applying that. Not, not just me, but we had some of our good committee members that understood business, but applying commercial savviness to... Um, a grassroots football club. And so what was the process for that? What was the kind of growth? Did you did you see results from that? Yeah, I mean, if I look back over the years, at the time we were sort of a mid-size, reasonably big club with about 700 players. And within seven years of that, we grew the particip participation base, the number of players from 700 to 2,000. So we became, and I think still are, the largest grassroots football club in Australia. Wow. So, as you say, uh, your kind of work life was in, in big uh, IT digital transformations and then taking similar skills to a grassroots football club. Yeah, I mean, we, we were lucky and not, it wasn't me that implemented it, but we, 20 odd years ago, had online registration, which not many clubs had. We had a website, which not many clubs had. So some of the foundation tech was there. Um, but yeah, having a plan and saying, okay, how are we going to use that tech to communicate uh, with members, how are we going to use the data that was going to be generated from knowing where your members lived to allow us to go and attract sponsors, whether that was from, you know, the local real estate agent, local physio, local car dealer. Um, you know, we were able to go to them and say, do you realize that 93% of the people in this postcode, um, sorry, 93% of the people in our club live within these postcodes, so if you're trying to attract them as customers, why don't you come on board and and sponsor the club so yeah so it was, a, it, was, it was good which is fantastic i mean at a grassroots level and it's it's principles that apply at a professional level it's it's 100 percent. i mean when i look when i look back the key things that we were involved in at a grassroots club how do we grow participation how do we make the players enjoy the experience better how do we create better coaches how do we generate money are all things whether it's fifa whether it's a a club is all things that apply equally at all levels of the sport. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, that was seven years, as you said, running a, running a local football club. Where, 
where did that go to the next step or the next kind of rung on the ladder in your career in um, sports tech? Yeah, so uh, when sort of I'd done that, I mean, I was still working at PwC, but I sort of had enjoyed that experience of, of you know, running a small organization effectively with a football club. And I thought, well, why should we keep to ourselves this magic formula? We've, we've written the blueprint on how to run a football club. Um, you know, we, the evidence was there in terms of the growth of the club, the success of the club. Um, why don't I go to Football Federation Australia and say, well, you know, this isn't a secret. Um, I'm happy to share the blueprint with you. And perhaps a bit ballsy at the time, but I went along and said, why don't you give me a job and I'll, and I'll replicate what we've done at Linfield across the 2000 football clubs in Australia. And so obviously um, the association said, that's fantastic, welcome aboard, um, definitely yes, and, and kind of, we'll match your salary at PwC, here's 10 staff, an operating budget of half a million dollars, is that, is that how this journey goes? Um, I hoped it might go like that, but it doesn't. I mean, there was a new CEO at the time, John O'Neill, he'd just come in, he'd been running rugby union very successfully, didn't have an awful lot of knowledge about football, but um, no, it didn't work out that way. What actually happened was, I think three weeks later, um, I received a letter saying, thanks for applying for the job, but you've been unsuccessful, which annoyed me a little bit because I didn't actually apply for a job. I went to them with an idea. But, um, you know, in life, a lot of doors shut in your face and you've got to sort of bounce back up again and say, how do you make the most of it? So my view was we were onto something, we had something, and I thought, well, if the governing body of football in Australia is not going to back it, uh, I'm going to back myself and I'm, I'm going to get together with a bunch of people that I knew in the game um, and, and decide that we, you know, we'd start up a business and basically replicate what we had. Yep. And what was the next step with that? What was that business? Um, that, that business, I think it was a business called All About Football. Um, it had some fantastic um, individuals associated with it. Um, you know, Ron Smith, who at the time had been the head of football at the Australian Institute of Sport and had developed some of the best talent. Um, we had David Mitchell, who was the first Australian to play in the Bundesliga, Alex Tobin, Australian's captain, Jesper Olsen, former Manchester United and Ajax player, others, including Danny Townsend, who's now CEO of Sydney FC, and George Kokoleski, who's a lawyer at PwC with me. So we had some very smart people, and we decided that we'd... Um, you know, basically go along to the likes of a Nike or other big brands and show them what we plan to do, and that they would write a big check, and we would roll this out to the other clubs. And so that happened. Nike came in, said, "Here's a big check. Here's a few million dollars. Here's ten operating staff." Again, a lesson you learn in business. That we had some very good meetings, and I think they liked the concept. Uh, but if it doesn't fit with where the brand is going at that particular time, it can be difficult. Um, so. We weren't successful, but... And, and do you think that was because the it was kind of the wrong time for those brands? I mean, that sounds like something you're doing now that, that Nike or Nike today would be yeah, very interested uh, in. Very good point. I think something is... Uh, when I look back at my career, there's a lot of things I think I was maybe ahead of and I got it wrong and if my timing had been better, maybe people would have said yes. Um, 100%. I think, um, you know, it's the sort of thing you're seeing now that people are saying well brands really want to get to the, where the numbers are with grassroots etc so i think you're right i think the timing was was probably wrong but i mean a good thing that did come out of it from me was that in sort of doing the research and how we're going to run this business um i realized i didn't have the it skills 
um, that I needed to find someone with sort of IT skills to build this system. We wanted to have a shared services model where we do um, marketing, IT, finance centrally and then sort of run it across the country. So, uh, you know, I went looking for a company that might know something about sports IT at the time. Did the usual thing, Googled sports IT and, and up came the name of this Melbourne company called Sporting Pulse. Yep, so, and do you reckon, so Sporting Pulse, so I, I know the story, so I don't want to preempt it, but so what happened next? So this this uh, kind of comes back on Google search, Sporting Pulse, working in sports IT. You've got this vision for what you want to do with grassroots sport, um, and they could be a piece of the puzzle. So what did you do next? Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. Essentially, when I, when I looked at the website, I couldn't believe that they were doing in AFL and basketball and in rugby league, um, essentially what I wanted to do in football. So they'd already done it. They were providing best practice sports tech solutions um, to the leagues and the clubs in those sports to help them manage their membership, communication and, and competition. So, yeah, so I called the number on the website and um, the conversation that, that followed has become somewhat company folklore within within our business. Um, Andrew Collins, who today is the Chief Product Officer for Atrium Sports, answered the call and I asked the question, I said to him, you know, I've looked at the website and I see you're doing some really great things in other sports, but you, you're not doing anything in football. Do you, do you have any ambitions to do anything in, in football? And it was then that I got the first probably a long pause and then, and then Andrew uttered the, the famous words, um, well, you know, you might think we're being a little bit presumptuous, but yeah, we've got really big ambitions for football. You know, one day we want to have FIFA as a customer. And Sorry. I was a little bit, I was a little bit, um, you know, what, 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 you know, who is this Melbourne startup that think they're going to have the biggest international sporting federation as a customer? But he followed it up by saying, you know, we signed FIBA, the world governing body for basketball, six months ago. So we can't see any reason why we can't sign FIFA as well. So that's, I mean, there's two great little nuggets in there. One is, if you're an entrepreneur, answer your phone. Because <laughs> <laughs> you never know who's going to be on the, uh, on the other end. Um, and the other one is, I guess, those, those bold, bold vision, bold dreams for, for what they're trying to do. So, and, and then what happened there? Was, so you mentioned that um, uh, now Chief Product Officer, what, 15 years later is uh, at, yeah, at Atrium Sports. We've, yeah, so we've worked together for ever since then. But yeah, essentially after that conversation... I was pretty excited. I thought, hmm, this is my sort of company. So I flew to Melbourne, I think, two days after that telephone call, um, supposedly in PwC business. Um, but we won't tell them that. <laughs> if, they're, if they're auditing their, their travel expenses from they, back they then. Might yeah. They yeah. might realise that wasn't the main purpose of the trip to Melbourne. But no, I met with Andrew and Nick Maywald, who was the CEO and founder of Sporting Pulse. We had a very long lunch in a, a well-known Melbourne restaurant. And Nick laid out his vision for Sporting Pulse. I explained what I'd done in football, what I wanted to do in football. And essentially, I was sold in the idea. I think um, three days later, I went back and I resigned from a very well-paid job at PwC, uh, who at the time, I think we had 6,000 staff. And I joined a small Melbourne startup that had 12 people. Wow, so what was, from that first phone call to you handing in your notice at PwC, how long was it? Uh, literally, I think a week. Wow. Yep. And yeah, no look, no looking back. So, I mean, that's, because I really want to get onto what Atrium Sports is doing at the moment. So, I'd love to, um, 
can you can I fast forward for the next fifteen years and some of the lowlights and highlights that have that have happened and bring us up to yeah sure twenty nineteen um, probably started with the lowlights so yeah so I joined I joined two thousand and four Sporting Pals and, and and the primary objective was to get football on board as a as a customer um, you know I thought I had all the relationships um, I was going to make it happen but um, I did manage to get. Football Federation to um, do an RFP to provide digital services to provide the tech that was already happening in the AFL and rugby league, um, but um, and and I was pretty sure we were going to win it because you know we had the track record. We, we you know there was no other suppliers really doing what we did, but um, yeah, I actually still remember the call to say we we, we, we didn't win it. We, it was um, we're all at a, I think it was 22 December. We're all at a Christmas party, Sporting Pulse Christmas party. And we got this call from Football Federation Australia to say, sorry guys, but uh, you haven't won it. Oh wow, that's, yeah, the Merry Christmas, right? Oh, perfect timing. Put a bit of a dampener on the Christmas party, let's say. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, but but again, you know, I think you have to bounce back. And, and for us it meant, okay, we weren't going to do football then. We had the contract with FIBA. We had the opportunity to roll our tech out in countries around the world for basketball. So, you know, we put our heads down and we concentrated on, on growing the, the basketball business. And, and, you know, we could have taken a different approach. We could have gone to the state federations and, and said, although the top bodies said, no, we know that you'd like to come on board, but, but we didn't. And, you know. And what was the choice around that? Like, why was it, is just like a, a kind of little insight into a business decision? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think I've got a very good understanding of why they don't. I think some people were swayed by bells and whistles and promised that you know they could have a wonderful CRM system where they'd be able to tap into the half million players that played uh, football in Australia. Um, but the small thing that they forgot is you've actually got to have a database of half a million people before you can actually talk to them. So, um, but so I think you know in in hindsight, not a lot happened. We we know that because two years later, the state bodies are the largest state body in Australia came knocking on our door and said, you know, we've been promised all these digital solutions and we haven't received anything. We know you guys are doing great work with AFL and basketball and rugby league, so come and work with us. So, um, you know, and then another state federation joined on board and by the time the third one was going to come on board, Football Federation came to us and said, okay, um, maybe we should be working with you. So it took a few years, but we got there. So a bit of patience and, I guess, trusting in your product that, was going to, but keeping yourself busy with um, yeah. existing customers in the meantime. Hundred percent. If you believe in your product, yeah, and and yeah, but you know, continue to prove that and, and build it in another area. So yeah, that's what we did. Definitely. So uh, that was, a, I guess, a low light, then a highlight. You know, low light being told no at the Christmas party, and then two years later coming back. What was a uh, any other highlights? I mean, around um, uh, around the the dream for FIFA. Did that did that eventuate? It, it did. It, it's funny. It it, it, it did eventually. It, it took um, it took probably nine years from that first phone call when uh, we were told. I mean, uh, we we were successfully rolling out our software, Australian software, to power basketball around the world. And because my first love is football, uh, I kept saying, "Why don't we go and knock on FIFA's door? Why don't we show FIFA how good FIFA are doing it?" So eventually, I think we did that and. Someone from FIFA was was in Australia, and we met with them, and we told them what we'd achieved. And and probably six to twelve months later than that, uh, FIFA decided that they, yeah they would put out a tender, 
Um, they wanted to have a better understanding of who actually played football around the world and how many coaches there were and how many referees. So there was a lot of countries that didn't have that infrastructure and FIFA's job was to try and help their member federations. So they put out a tender for a project called FIFA Connect, um, which was all about an, on an online registration platform for players, coaches and referees. So we responded to that tender and we were shortlisted. We flew to Zurich and presented at FIFA HQ. And this story has a happier ending that we won that contract. Fantastic. Yeah, I thought it would be heartbreaking if, if the Christmas party <laughs> the, yeah. the next year, nine years later or whatever it was. Yeah, it was, yeah. would have been. But yeah, I mean, it, we, we developed FIFA, FIFA Connect. It wasn't difficult for us. We'd, we'd essentially done the same thing for AFL and Rugby League 10 years previously. So we knew what we were doing. And I think today FIFA Connect has been used in over 90 countries around the world. Fantastic. So, I mean, another learning from that, I guess, is... Um, as you said, you were attracted to, to football as your first passion, but also as an addressable market, enormous around the world. Sure, sure. I mean, it was, um, yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing for us, I think you know, when we started Sporting Pulse, we did all sports. And and when we sold the Australian arm of Sporting Pulse to Rupert Murdoch's News Limited, we made the decision that the Sporting Pulse international business was only going to focus on two sports. So a tough, but I think the right decision, and we focused on the two largest commercially viable sports in football and basketball. And so that that slightly brings us up to to today. So what was that that bridge from? As you said, you sold the Australian Arm Sporting Pulse um, to News Limited, um, and then continued with the international operating business. And then how does that lead up to now with Atrium Sports? Yep. So so we. The money we made, the proceeds we made from selling Sporting Pulse Australia, we invested into the international business and continued to expand that with FIBA and then with FIFA. Um, and then I think it was 2015, 2016, um, we were introduced to a UK company called Bet Genius, whose business was providing software to bookmakers. And we, at the time, had developed... FIBA Live Stats, which was a um, capture of live basketball data courtside. So we trained 8,000 basketball statisticians around the world to sit outside of basketball courts and record live game events. So we got together with um, Bed Genius. We thought there was a fit there. We rebranded the company and, and we called it Genius Sport. So for a couple of years, we, we worked at um, this larger organization. Uh, Genius Sports, and then I left Genius Sports, I think almost two years ago, um, the end of 2017. And then faded off into the sunset, obviously. Yeah, for a little while, floated off into the sunset, and then decided, um, you know, did, did a few of us that were involved, Australian guys that were involved from 20 years ago in Sporting Pulse, did we have the appetite to have one more go at this business, and, and think came to the conclusion that given our history, given our relationships in sport, given our knowledge, uh, that we still had the appetite to have one more go. So um, we got together, we created a, a company called Atrium Sports. Um, we are, are backed by um, Elysian Park Ventures, a uh, US in private investment firm that have backed many sports tech companies. So we have a great partner in Elysian Park and they've basically backed us for this new new business and new business which is this time much more focused on video much more focused on um, being able to attract 
take the content to second tier basketball and to be able to uh, do everything without human intervention, to be able to capture a, a, a game using an autonomous video, being able to enhance that video, being able to distribute that video and, and monetize that video. So the Atrium Sports business is, is all about focusing on, on video. Yep, definitely. I mean, with the advent of new distribution channels for live sports and all the changes in the OTT space, uh, digital media rights are predicted to keep growing for the next few years, next three to five, um, yep. depending on who you kind of... No, no, I think uh, PwC said that in their last uh, 2019 survey, it was the fastest growing area of, of, of sport was that digital media space. Yep. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, but as you mentioned, uh, traditional sports and, and kind of lower leagues and, and different thing, things like that, um, can't afford uh, the production cost, especially if you're looking at, say, even on the, the statistician side or that, training 8,000 people and distributing them around, around the world to, to capture those stats. Similar to with, with video and the production, it's prohibitively expensive for most sporting teams and clubs. So, um, I mean, this is just kind of throw a number at the wall, but how, how much money do you think is currently being left on the table um, by this content not being captured and then distributed? Are we talking... Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think I think um, you know there there's so much sport content. That a very very small percentage is captured professionally and and is available to view. Um, so there are you know the, the, there's a huge amount that isn't. Uh, and I think if you look at that long tail of sport, and if you look at how many people are playing those sports, then it's tens tens of millions of people that are playing those sports. So. If you think, well, you know, could you, if you're talking to those people, if you're providing them with products that they want and the right offers, etc., um, you would like to think that it could be in the tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, so kind of established that the value's there um, and it's being lost due to the existing traditional mode of, of the production of live sports. Um, how can tech help with this? So for us, you know, we, we have the line that, um, you know, automation is the new normal. So everything has to be around the, you know, trying to use the latest technology and minimum human intervention to be able to do that. So for us, that starts with um, a company we acquired, a Belgian company called Keymotion, who had been producing some fantastic autonomous video capture hardware. Um, uh, primarily for basketball, so it starts with the capture of that content. So that's uh, a camera, that a fixed camera that gets installed in a basketball court. It doesn't need a human operator behind it, but can zoom in to where the action is and zoom out. So it starts with the capture of that content, and and then you know it's all about making that content more engaging for fans. So you know I, I start with the premise that if you if you watch a sport without any commentary, it's so-so, but it's not that interesting. But if you then add a, a layer of commentary and insightful commentator, then it becomes more engaging. If you then add a layer of graphics that tell a story, um, it becomes more interesting again again for fans. So for us, it's all about how we can use tech and not do it all ourselves, but bring in partners um, to make that content more exciting, more engaging, um, and make it easy for everybody. So, you know, we use the line we're trying to make the complex simple so you know we capture that video we enhance it with commentary we enhance it with graphics we distribute it but for the sports point of view from the sport administrator point of view um you know they sh 
don't need to see what happens in the background. They just should get the benefit of uh, of seeing that live video. Yeah, definitely. So, and you mentioned partners there that you're that you're working with. Who are some of those partners, and what do they do? So, for example, on the in the commentary fan engagement side, we're talking to the likes of Spalk, a New Zealand company, where we can add virtual commentators. So the commentator no longer needs to be in the stadium, but it can be somewhere else. Uh, companies like Kisway, who again can provide that remote commentator and, and additional information. Um, you know, so we, we're looking at a bunch of companies that can add to that um, autonomous production and, and distribution process. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, Spork, um, we've known those guys for a while, actually. They they pitched at one of our first conferences years and years and years and years ago uh, back in Melbourne. So it's fantastic to see them on a on a global yeah, stage. Small, small New doing. Zealand, small New Zealand company but yeah they've done some they've done some great work particularly in basketball yeah fantastic so that's one of the applications for fans obviously you you have that automated process that kind of spits out at the end um it's engaging content for them are there applications for players and coaches yeah i mean if you you think you know the capture of video sure it's for fans both in terms of the live game and and highlights but once you've captured that video you know, if it can be you, it can be used for coaches, and it can be used for players to learn from, and and to improve their performance. You know, video is a great learning tool, and you know that's um, that's the way that um, coaches teach and improve at the professional level. So, by able being able to capture video at a lower level, um, and being able to allow coaches to analyze that and communicate that, um, there's huge opportunities to improve performance. Um, so yeah, we very much see it as as video that can be used in the coaching and performance uh, area as well as in fan engagement. Fantastic. So, I mean, what's the growth path for Atrium? So you, you've talked there about coming from uh, the grassroots area and coming coming kind of applying this tech down. Is it is it disrupting teams that are already capturing producing this content with? So I'm thinking. Um, large professional teams that will have their own in-house media team will also have on the performance side. They'll have video analysts. They'll have maybe fixed things in their training facilities. Is it is it going to them and saying, we can do this but cheaper? Or is it going to lower leagues and teams where, because the barrier to entry is so high in terms of cost, they haven't been able to do this at all? Or is it is it a combination of both? Is it yeah, one I than think, the other? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. It's probably less so on the professional side where... Um, you know, there's big budgets and big uh, production budgets and being able to, to do things, but they're still, you know, slightly lower level. Um, there's, you know, there's sport that's not been captured and been able to go there and, and look at um, why it's not been captured and be able to do that and by putting in autonomous cameras, etc. Um, in some cases, yeah, there might be, um, it may be being captured manually and there's an opportunity to save some costs. So it's, it's probably a combination of both but probably more so looking at the sort of lower tier uh, that can't afford the big budgets and trying to trying to provide them with a professional experience yeah fantastic and obviously that has uh, downstream effects in terms of well, the performance side as you mentioned that if they can get used to uh, players can and coaches can get used to having video analysis earlier um, then they're yeah, going to improve uh, more and then they're going to be more um, I guess uh, literate with it at high levels. 100%. I mean, if you can imagine, you know, when, when we put cameras in to make cover the top level of sport, um, for example, we're, you know, installing 36 cameras in Argentina as we speak. 
Um, but those cameras will also capture if there's an under-16 game taking place in the same court. Um, and you can imagine, you know, if that 16-year-old who previously didn't get to see themselves playing, um, you know, when they finish their game of basketball, if they can see their own highlights clip, and if the coach of that under-16 team can, you know, provide some comment and feedback and, and help improve the 16-year-old's the performance, then, you know, you can imagine the, the power in that and how it's going to, you know, get the 16-year-old more excited and interested in playing the sport um, and also improve, the, improve you know, their love of the game. And for those clubs as well that have that capability is, uh, is recruiting. Going back to your start, you, you were saying that uh, the local football team had a website. Yeah, back 20 years ago, had a website, had a way to register players, had a way to connect, which was a competitive advantage in yep. that realm of grassroots sports. Something like this, you can say to a player, hey, come play for our club because we can provide you with video highlights, whether that's just for them to post on social media and <laughs> say, show their mates that they're doing it well, or if it's actually they're, they're a serious player and they want to um, improve based on that, it's, it's yep. definitely a 100%, competitive I think, I think the analogy you picked is a great one. I think, you know, tech has moved on. And, and when we had some things 20 years ago, it was enough to differentiate and get people excited. Um, you know, these days, video is a, is a core part of that. So, yeah, being able to um, say to um, players, you know, come and join our club, because if you do so, you're going to have um, some video highlights or, or even live stream your game and being able to see your game is a sort of a next 20 year on generation from what we did uh, before. So, yeah, good point. Fantastic. Um, well, that was a great chat. I mean, something that we, we finish up with our guests is asking them about their, their favourite sporting team or, or athlete. Um, I know you're an absolute diehard Celtic fan, so yep. that, that's, there's no point even asking that. <laughs> um, what's your favourite sporting moment? I've got two favourite sporting moments. Um, one is the 15th of November 2005, uh, the Olympic Stadium in Sydney, when the second leg of the World Cup uh, qualifier playoff between Australia and Uruguay. I was there with two of my sons and to witness Australia qualifying for a World Cup for the first time in 32 years when I'd worked in football, been involved in football. Um, the relief when John Aloisi's penalty hit the back of the net is a moment that will live with me forever. So that's one favourite moment. Fantastic, yep. And, and the other one is I think it was the 25th of May 2017. So I like the dates as well because <laughs> I've got my moments, but I don't think I'm not sure no, dates. I, remember yeah. the, I remember the dates. Um, so this one was very special for me. It was um, I mentioned Ron Smith earlier, who, who you know I have most respect for Ron than any other person in football in, in Australia, even beyond that. Um, someone who's recently completed a PhD in goal scoring patterns in football, but someone who you know developed the careers of Mark Viduka. Joe Simonich and, and, and many, many others. So Ron has become a great friend over the years and um, I so happened to uh, be in London with him um, in May 2017. And we decided um, that we were going to fly up to Glasgow for, for the Scottish Cup final. So Celtic were playing Aberdeen and I'm, I work closely with Celtic and I'm what's called a global Celt and, and I know the chief executive and the chairman and a lot of the senior execs and I thought I'd you know, be able to get tickets for the, for the final. So I said to Ron, don't worry. But um, turns out because it wasn't at Celtic Park, it was a lot harder. But Ron, one of the talents that he discovered as a 10-year-old um, is Tom Rogic. 
in Canberra. So, so Ron identified Tom and helped develop Tom into a footballer. And so Ron made the phone call and, and said to Tom, we're going to be in Glasgow, can you get us tickets for the game? So, so Ron and I went to the, to the Scottish Cup final 2017 Celtic against Aberdeen. What was the final result? Well, I'll, you, I'll give you a little bit before that because the sort of the build-up to it was in the taxi on the way to the game. And I said, we've come all this way to see Tom and imagine if he doesn't even play. Imagine if he's on the subs bench and he doesn't get a game. So that's actually what happened. So the team team announcement happened and Tom was on the bench and we thought, oh, it's not so good. Because we'd sort of dreamed about, imagine if he scored the winning goal, what that would be like. And um, But then I think 20 minutes into the game, Kieran Tierney gets an elbow in the face, gets injured. Brendan Rodgers makes a substitution and, and decides to put Tom Rogic on. So Ron and I got a bit excited at that. And then fast forward, the game's one each and we're, we're one minute, 31 seconds into um, stoppage time. And, you know, that moment will live me for, forever. Tom Rogic picks up the ball, um, beats one defender, beats two defender and slides the ball under the keeper and Celtic win the Scottish Cup final, win the treble for the first time in 30 years. And... Delirium breaks out and Ron and I are hugging each other, tears flowing down our cheeks and people all around us are wondering why these grown men are crying and dancing. Incredible. That's yeah. absolutely incredible. But yeah, very special moment and, and, and it made it even more special the next day when um, Ron contacted Tom and said, look, have you got any time to catch up? I know you're a bit of a media star and you're doing all these interviews, but do you have any time to catch up? And he was actually flying back um, from Glasgow to Australia for a World Cup qualifier and we were flying um, from Glasgow back to London so we actually spent an hour together at Glasgow Airport and absolutely wonderful guy, very humble and you know, we'll never forget sitting there trying to talk to him for an hour and every Celtic fan that walked past who identified him would come up to him and ask to get his, their photo taken with them. So I think I ended up taking about 35 photos of people with, with Tom Rogic in, in that hour. But yeah, very memorable moment. And getting back to my club, Linfield, you know, Tom signed a jersey for us. It was the 60th anniversary of Linfield Football Club and Tom very kindly signed a, a jersey which now sits framed very proudly alongside some signed Tom Rogic photos in the, in the clubhouse of Linfield Football Club. Oh, that's fantastic! At, at, you know, and that's where it starts. It starts at the, at the local um, grassroots football football clubs, and absolutely. And it's fantastic to see that that as well. I mean, tech uh, kind of penetrating down to that level um, as a tool, not yep. as just a gimmick, 100%. as an actual yep. as an actual tool to um, to grow the sport. So, yep. well, thanks so much for your time, Umberto. That's that's fantastic. Um, we'll put a, a few things in the show notes. I'll see if I can get something on that um, on that Scottish Cup final that people can look up if they're <laughs> interested. Um, and some stuff about Atrium Sports and, and obviously the agreement you've signed recently with FIBA and the Connected Stadium. So looking forward to seeing that Thanks, uh, unfold. Thanks. Enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. And there you have it. That was Umberto Rigetti, Chief Strategy Officer for Atrium Sports. Uh, fantastic story there to wrap up the episode about uh, his favourite sporting moment. Uh, Umberto is just an absolute diehard Celtic fan, probably one of the biggest kind of super fans of that I've ever met in my life. So fantastic that he could experience that. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with Umberto, I'm going to include his uh, LinkedIn and Twitter details on the show notes on sportstechfeed.com. Also including a few links in there, including a, a bit of YouTube footage of that uh, extra time goal. If you want to go back and, and live it and maybe spot out Umberto in the crowd somewhere. 
over the next few weeks. We've got a lot of different topics kind of coming up. We're covering everything from artificial intelligence and sporting prediction and in data, sports betting, uh, elite performance uh, in esports, and how basically technology and and traditional ways of increasing performance is being applied to esports athletes, which will also include a discussion about is an esports player an athlete? So definitely some interesting uh, viewpoints in there. But as uh, as always, sportstechfeed.com if you want to check through previous episodes and thomas at sportstechfeed.com if you'd like to give any feedback. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.